0: Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for November 15th, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Three new final rules issued last week mean only one thing. More audits are on the horizon, as we'll learn today on Monitor Monday. Also, we continue our exclusive series on how some auditors are secretly manipulating data to increase extrapolation to get more money from providers. Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach has details. The Biden administration's effort to vaccinate elementary school children is off to a good start. Nearly a million students ages 5 to 11, received COVID-19 shots in the first week. Monitor Monday legislative analyst Matthew Albright has that story and other healthcare-related news. We will also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Ellen Fink Sandnik, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Claser Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck.
1: Good morning, everybody. Get a walk in a monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, parts of the US are experiencing rising cases of the deadly coronavirus. Some states are moving ahead with plans to give booster shots to anyone who needs one. That despite current guidance from healthcare authorities. In a related story, Johnson Johnson has announced splitting the company into two public units, one centered on drugs and medical devices, another focused on products for consumers. Meanwhile, the death toll in the United States today is more than 760,000 deaths. We continue our exclusive series that reveals how auditors are removing zero paid claims from the universe of claims to be audited. Rack Monitor investigative reporter Edward M. Roach continues today with part two in his compelling series. We have much news to report and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. (music) Monday Rounds is
0: sponsored by R1 Position Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is
2: Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all, and good morning, Dr. Laura. Well, finally, I read through the outpatient rule, and there's really no great surprises. As I mentioned, CMS is keeping the inpatient-only list alive and adding back most of the procedures they removed this year. Now, it took CMS 100 pages to discuss this policy change. When CMS finalized the two-midnight rule, they, that only took 47 pages. I'll go into detail about the changes in my December webinar. But a couple other things in the rules stood out. First, there are 110 different skin substitutes that are used for skin grafting. Who knew? That really sounds like going through the olive oil aisle at the grocery store. So many choices. Second, as usual, there are a bunch of new devices that were asking for approval for a device pass-through payment where the hospital gets additional money added to the outpatient payment if the device is used. This is the outpatient version of the new technology add-on payment system for inpatient admissions. And as with the IPPS rules, CMS denied approval for that device that scrubs the colon clean during colonoscopy. Overall, they actually denied 50% of the devices that were asking for pass-through payment. Now, what happens when devices get turned down? Well, one of two things. The hospitals and doctors evaluate the cost, realize there's no added payment, and choose not to use it despite its potential benefit. Or manufacturers lower the cost so that providers will find the cost-benefit ratio beneficial and start purchasing it. Now, that's the other side of hospitals that's rarely discussed but crucial, our colleagues in supply chain. They're also adopting an interesting quality measure, the rate of patient recalls for further imaging after a screening mammogram. It's a fascinating issue. If there's too much additional imaging done, you subject patients to unnecessary radiation, cost, and anxiety. And if there's too little done, you miss you, mis- you risk missing treatable cancers. But here's the problem. Just like observation, there is no right rate. DMS even admits that, but they state that expert consensus supports their chosen range of 5 to 12%. But if there's no data to support that, how can you use that value? Will hospitals below that rate have to start recalling patients with normal exams simply to avoid a penalty? Will hospitals above that rate recall fewer patients and miss cancers? I'm not a fan of this. Finally, there was a lot of talk on Friday about the Medicare Part B rate increases that were announced. They're, they're quite significant, and there's also a lot of bad information going on, and here's the truth. You've heard me talk about aduhelm, the new Alzheimer's drug that costs $56,000 a year and is given intravenously and requires brain imaging, CMS raised all Part B rates because they don't know how many patients will be getting this treatment in 2022. They admit that they're planning for the worst case scenario, that it's used a lot and it costs Part B a lot of money. That's how budgeting works. And of course, if COVID taught us one thing, it's that some doctors will do anything for money. We can only hope that rational people um, succeed and that doctors realize this drug does not work and won't order it and 2023 premiums can then go down. Thanks, Chuck.
1: Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Coming up next, the Monitor Monday Rack Report.
0: The Monitor Monday Rack Report is presented by Sound Physicians, a leading physician advisory service to hospitals seeking to transform outcomes for acute episodes of care. Their on-site and remote physician advisor experts address the root cause for missed reimbursement by tightly integrating with hospital case management and medical staff to review cases and ensure appropriate level of care and clinical documentation integrity. For more information on Sound Physicians, visit their website, soundphysicians.com. Com/slash/advisory.
1: Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC Report, is health care attorney, Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole.
3: Hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. Hospitals across the nation are seeing lower profits, and it's all because of a sudden tsunami of Medicare and Medicaid provider audits. Whether it be RAC, MAC, UPIC, or program integrity, hospital audits are rampant. Billing errors, especially, quote-unquote, Supposed bundling are causing a high rate of insurance claims denials, hurting the finances of hospitals and providers. A recent report from the American Hospital Association found under an optimistic scenario, hospitals would lose $53 billion in revenue this year. Under a more pessimistic scenario, hospitals would lose $122 billion thanks to a $64 billion decline in outpatient revenue. The Healthcare Auditing and Revenue Integrity 2021 Benchmarking and Trends Report is a report that came out and discussed why administrative issues continue to play such a big role in the nation's high costs in this area. The data used covers 900 facilities, 50,000 providers, 1,500 coders, and 700 auditors. What could go wrong? According to the report, 40% of COVID-related charges were denied and 40% of professional outpatient audits for COVID and 20% of hospital inpatient audits failed. Undercoding posed a significant revenue risk, with audits indicating the average value of underpayment is $3,200 for a hospital claim and $64 for professional claim. Overcoding—that's where the big bucks come in—remains problematic. The Medicare Advantage plans and payers under scrutiny for expensive inpatient medical necessity claims, drug charges, and clinical documentation to justify the final reimbursement. Missing modifiers resulted in an average denied amount of nine hundred dollars for hospital outpatient claims, six hundred and ninety dollars for inpatient claims and $170 for professional claims. 33% of charges submitted with hierarchical condition category codes were initially denied by payers, highlighting the increased scrutiny of complex inpatient stays and higher financial risk exposure. The top fields being audited were diagnoses, present on admission indicator, diagnosis position, CPT or HITPICS coding unit build, and data service. The average outcome from the audit was 70.5% satisfactory, so as a whole, they got a C. While this report did not in and of itself lead to any alleged overpayments and recoupments, guess who else is leading this audit and salivating like Pavlov's dog? The RACs, the MACs, the UPICs, and all the other alphabet soup auditors those 900 facilities and 50,000 healthcare providers need to be prepared for audits with consequences. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of practice. And coming up at about uh, 11 minutes after the hour, you're going to hear Matthew Albright, Alan Finksandman, David Glazer, and Rack Monitor and Investigator reporter at Roach, who is standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's November the 15th, and you're listening to. The live edition of Monitor Monday standby.
0: The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking. The membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation, integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use. The results of their latest physician advisor survey. And take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more.
1: Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is Healthcare Attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. And David, as I say every Monday morning, what could be risky today? New policy fatigue, Chuck. So on Friday, CMS issued new final guidance
4: about mingle, commingling of space and hospital outpatient departments. But I don't have time to cover that this week, so that'll be our topic next week. Instead, I'm going to talk about the COVID vaccine requirement for freestanding physician clinics and also some information about good faith estimates in surprise, as part of surprise billing. Both proved complicated to analyze. So all of the different vaccine mandates can be incredibly confusing. As Matthew Albright explained last week, the CMS mandate requiring vaccinations only applies for organizations that have conditions of participation. If you're a provider-based clinic, there are conditions of participation, so the CMS mandate applies. But if you're in a freestanding physician clinic, there are no conditions of participation, hence no CMS mandate. Now, there are two additional sets of rules. One applies to government contractors but participating in Medicare and Medicaid is not a government contractor for this purpose. That leaves the new OSHA requirement. Let's ignore for the moment the fact the court has temporarily prevented enforcement of the November OSHA rules. If the rules are reinstated, what must freestanding clinics do? The answer depends on how you're handling the OSHA rules that were issued in June. If you complied with those rules, requiring your staff to wear face masks or respirators, limiting exposure to aerosol-generating procedures, physical distancing, physical barriers, cleaning, disinfection, and the other factors that were included in that June guidance, you will not need to follow the new OSHA rule at least through December 21st. That's when the June OSHA temporary, emer- I'm sorry, emergency temporary standards will expire. If they're extended, you will still not need to follow the most recent and more burdensome vaccine mandate issued a couple of weeks ago. But if you managed to avoid the June requirements by using the exception that permits you to screen all visitors to your building and denying entry to people that might have COVID, then you either need to start following those June rules or you will be stuck with the November rules assuming they survive the court challenge. Now, my colleagues wrote a Q&A about this, and if you want a copy of it, it's free, let me know. Next, I want to talk about a provision in the No Surprises Act statute that has received little coverage, save for Matthew Albright mentioning it a few weeks ago. Most of the No Surprises Act applies only to services that happen in hospitals, ambulatory surgical centers, freestanding EDs, and air ambulances. But there's one provision that applies universally to hospitals, physician clinics, dentists, and basically the entire healthcare industry. Under it, clinics need to provide a good-faith estimate of the fees to be charged. Initially, as of January 1, 2022, the requirement only applies to patients who are uninsured or who are not using insurance to pay for their services. At some point in the future, this provision will require healthcare organizations to provide an estimate to insurance companies, but that date is uncertain. Now this rule only applies to scheduled services. If the patient isn't using insurance and schedules a service 10 or more days in the future, you've got to provide them with the estimate within three business days after they call the schedule. If the appointment is three to nine days out, you have to provide the estimate within one business day of scheduling. For anything scheduled within three days, no estimate is required. The No Surprises Act requirements are extremely complicated. Fortunately, Rack Monitor has a webinar to explain them. Please sign up for that December 9th event. I believe Emily has pushed the link out, and you can always look on the Rack store. Chuck, it seems that a lot of organizations are still learning about the nuances of the No Surprise Act. You never want to be singing Delamitri's Always the Last to Know. If I read the law, I felt like creation's gone crazy. But we will do our best to make sure our listeners are not the last to know. know. Back to you,
1: Chuck. (laughs) Thanks, David. Very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder at the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Money legislative update.
0: The legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zellis, a market-leading provider-focused electronic health care payments technology company. Zelus delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental
5: providers nationwide.
1: Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck,
5: today it's all about slowing down. We're going to touch on a few Biden administration health care policies that are stalling or getting pushed back. First, as we talked about last week, the Department of Labor's OSHA published a temporary rule requiring all companies with 100 or more employees to either require their employees to get vaccinated or require unvaccinated workers to take weekly COVID tests. David just talked about that a bit just now. An appeals court made up of three Republican-appointed judges temporarily stopped the administration from implementing the rule. Now, last week, after the Biden administration made its pitch to the appeals court, That same court elected to keep that block on the rule. In practice, it froze the vaccine mandate in its tracks. That's not the last word, however. The administration has said that they've only just begun to fight, and it is expected that the Supreme Court will have to weigh in at some point. We've also talked for some time about the pushback that the Biden administration is getting about policies put forward in the No Surprises Act regulations. The main point of contention is the administration's policy of making a plan's median in-network weight serve as the de facto reimbursement benchmark for surprise out-of-network claims. At the beginning of November, the Texas Medical Association launched a lawsuit against the administration about that policy, and about the same time, 160 members of the U.S. House of Representatives sent a letter to the administration asking that the policy be reversed. Numerous provider associations also voiced their support for that letter. For its part, the administration insists it knows exactly what it's doing with the No Surprises Act. The qualifying payment amount policy, an administration official said last week, was, quote, not an accident. It was a deliberate decision, the official said. The comment period for that regulation ends the first week in December. More to come on that. One Biden policy that is going forward is the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. That bill was passed by the House earlier this month, and the president is expected to sign it today. Chuck, you asked me last week what health care related items are in the current version of the infrastructure bill that is now sitting on the president's desk. The answer is not much. There is funding the bill that expands broadband Internet, which will help those in rural areas with accessing health care through telehealth. And that's about it for the infrastructure bill. But there is quite a bit more health care funding in the more expensive Build Back Better social spending package that Congress is expected to act on later this month. The Build Back Better bill includes money that would reduce health care premiums for people that buy insurance on the ACA exchange marketplaces and would expand Medicaid for an additional 4 million people. The bill would also extend the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, and would offer hearing coverage through Medicare. That Build Back Better package, of course, will not be as easy to pass as the infrastructure bill, which itself was no walk in the park. We'll have more on the health provisions that are in that Build Back Better package. As that bill progresses, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew All right. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer over zealous. Now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Sandrick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey, and good morning, Alan.
3: Good
6: morning, Chuck, and it is wonderful to be back. Happy Monitor Monday, all. The country's smallest hospitals continue to be in peril, as are the patients who rely on them. This continues to be the reality for rural health, with major challenges for the patients and providers in those regions. 7.4% 7.4% of babies born in the U.S. are birthed at hospitals handling 10 to 500 births a year or low-volume hospitals. In the context of our industry's fiscal focus, that seems a relatively low number, yet so much for the value-versus-volume culture shift. For the women and families enduring these pregnancies, this dearth and care becomes a major quality issue for concern, not to mention a fight against morbidity and mortality. Here are the facts. Over one third of hospitals with obstetrics units in the US are referred to as low volume, meaning they have 10 to 500 births annually. This compared to those facilities of 501 to 1,000 births, 1001 to 2,000 births, or those with over 2,000 births. 18.9% of low volume facilities were not within 30 miles of any other obstetric hospital services. were within 30 miles of a hospital with over 2,000 deliveries per year. The most isolated hospitals were frequently low volume. 58.4% located in extremely rural regions. Close to 200 rural hospitals have closed over the past 16 years, another 20% at risk of closure. Of those remaining facilities, less than 50% have an obstetrics unit. The end result means greater risk for mother and baby, as well as considerable trauma. Increased births forced outside the hospital, births in hospitals with OB specialists or necessary care limited, neonatal intensive care units for preterm births even less available. Under 50% of rural counties have a practicing OBGYN, which increases the likelihood by three to four times of maternal and infant mortality. Women are 30% more likely to hemorrhage after delivery in rural hospitals with the lowest number of deliveries. Decreased access to OBGYN providers and clinics, fewer women accessing prenatal care, means a lack of awareness specific to critical factors that complicate the pregnancy and compromise health delivery, such as anemia, gestational diabetes, blood pressure, and a baby in the breech position. A dearth of postpartum care yields increased concern for proper assessment and interventions for factors as postpartum depression. Finances are a major player in the decision making to maintain necessary specialty services for patients in any region. Let's keep in mind, 50% of all rural births are paid for by Medicaid, providing far less reimbursement than commercial insurers. Closing these critical hospital services is not the answer. Expanding funding has been among the recommendations. Something must shift before limited access to care becomes even more of an acceptable comorbidity for those residing in a rural community. This week's Monitor Monday listener survey asks, How much of a concern is access to appropriate care, whether inpatient or outpatient, for populations served by your organization? Not at all. 25% of the time. 50% of the time. Over 50% do not know. It's amazing what everybody is forced to think about when faced with these considerations. We'll be back with the results. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Alan. That was consultant and author Alan fink And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. And why are some ALJs tossing out Medicare extrapolations? That report is next, but first, this very important message.
0: These days, maintaining strict regulatory compliance is a big challenge. A variety of factors, from a deluge of regulatory news to the ongoing impact of COVID 19, make it feel like you're navigating turbulent waters. Now, more than ever, you need to be sure everyone on your team, including those working remotely, is following the same guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast is your port in the storm. For a single money saving fee, your whole team can access the full library of exclusive rack Monitor educational webcasts featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Here's good news. You can get a complimentary three-day trial by visiting the portal page at Rack University.
1: Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here is Alan Fink-Samnick.
6: Thank you, Chuck. How much of a concern is access to appropriate care, whether inpatient or outpatient, for the population served by our listeners' organization? Well, about 10% said not at all, which is actually even higher than I thought it might be. About 20% said 25% of the time. That's, oh, it's changing as I speak. Closer to 7% say 50% of the time, and that's far too much. Over 50% close to 30% of our listeners, which is a frightening consideration that 30% do not know, but onward and upward for what will happen with access to rural care and its continuing um, impact on patients.
1: We continue our explosive series that exposes the first time how unsavory auditors are using zero-based claims to increase extrapolation. Here now with part two of his exclusive series for Rack Monitor is Rack Monitor investigator reporter Ed Roach. Good morning, Ed.
7: Hey, Chuck. How are you? Let me just review quickly what zero-paid claims are, and then I'll just talk about why it's outlawed in the PIM. And then we're going to look at two ALJ decisions that have thrown out extrapolations because of this problem. So zero-paid claims are basically just claims the provider submits that are not paid there's not much record kept of why they're not paid but th- they have a zero there and so when the auditor comes in to sample a bunch of claims to do a statistical extrapolation they they pick a period of time one year or so and then they extract that those claims from the master universe database and That's called a frame, and then from that, they do the sample. But what they do behind the scenes is that when they extract this thing from the master database, they eliminate all the zero-paid claims. And what this does is it makes it impossible for a zero-paid claim that should have been paid to be reviewed during the audit. And this biases the extrapolation number against the provider because it can only be adjusted upward and never downward because there's never any possible credit or review of zero-paid claims. Now, there there are 12 or so parts of the PIM that require zero-paid claims be included. Um, and in particular, Section 8.432 says that removal of unpaid claims is a direct violation of this section or that chapter in the PIM. So, In spite of all of this, for years and years, the um, auditors have just been eliminating zero-paid claims, and they they usually don't document it very well, and they don't tell you which zero-paid claims have been eliminated and so on. It's all hidden behind the scenes. So recently, there have been two ALJ decisions about this. One said, quote, the PIM requires universes and frames to include unpaid services in at least 12 different sections but the frame generated by the the contractor only included services for which the amount paid was greater than zero. For this reason alone, the extrapolation in the audit is invalid. So that's one. And then in another decision, another ALJ wrote, the CPIC failed to include zero paid service lines in violation of the PIM. PIM Chapter 8, 84321 regarding the composition on the universe of claims cannot be interpreted to allow the removal of the unpaid or zero-paid service lines from the universe. So what this means is that finally some ALJs have gotten to the bottom of this problem and been able to trace back the skullduggery that takes place when the zero-paid claims are eliminated as the frame is extracted from the universe and they're rejecting it. And this is in, in um, this is really follows the PIM in some ways for the first time. I think I've been doing this for, since 2001, and this is the first time this problem has really been addressed. So it's too early to rest easy since this abusive practice has been so commonplace, and the auditors have grown used to doing this abuse as a matter of standard practice, and probably someone will appeal. But for the time being, This is definitely good news because the ALJs are actually following the PIM in this very important area. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Ed, very much for that exclusive report. That was Ed Roach. Ed is... Calling in from New York, he is a rack Monitor Investigator Reporter. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And we thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Finksandry, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and rack Monitor Investigator Reporter Edward M. Roach, who reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.